Well, I mean, I have massive amounts of delusional belief in myself. Rejection only made me want to do it more. When I'm right something, if someone doesn't like it, then they're wrong and I'm right. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, Inspector Gadget, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I reached out to Ben Mesrick to learn more about this guy. He's the author behind the movie, The Social Network, Bringing Down the House, and a bunch of my other favorite books. He's got a new book out. I recommend it. Check it out called Wooly. In our chat today, you're going to learn three things and a bunch more. First off, how did Ben get rejected 190 times and over six years before he finally made it? I love stories like that. Not that he's failing, but how the hell did this guy persist? Second off, why does he think about movie rights before he even writes a book? And number three, how to decide if your book, your business, or whatever idea is worth pursuing. We talk about that and a bunch more. Enjoy. Before I begin, though, I just really want to thank you. I'm serious, man. Thank you. I love you guys. I love it when you listen to what we're talking about and you take action and make your lives better. It means the world to me. David, Jason, everyone on the Dork Squad that's putting these episodes together, and the guests. Thank you guys so much. I love you. Enjoy the show. I guess I was curious about your career. What do you remember about that? Because you kind of forget how hard it was in the beginning. You're like, oh, life's great. I put out a book or I put out this internet and make money and it's easy. But what do you remember about those early days? My dad's a doctor and my mom's a lawyer and both my brothers are doctors and both their wives are doctors and lawyers. And So I was the black sheep of the family when I said I wanted to be a writer. When I graduated from college, my dad basically said, you know, give it one year. And if you don't sort of make any headway, then you got to go to school or something. And then I locked myself in an apartment in Boston and I wrote nine novels in a year to try and make it into writing and uh, managed to get rejected by everyone in publishing, but eventually did manage to sell my first book. So it was tough. You know, the beginning of my career was definitely as it should be, I think, hard to break in. There was something cool and romantic about it, going to the post office every week and mailing something off and then getting all the rejections and hoping that something would happen. My friends were all graduating from Harvard, so they were all getting really good jobs and making tons of money. I was not. (laughs) I learned very many ways to pay my rent with credit cards and racked up enormous amounts of debt. It was touch and go for a while, and there were definitely moments when I had a stack of business school applications because I knew The only way I'd ever pay my way out of my debt was to go to business school. Previous to selling sort of my first book, I was on the verge of bankruptcy numerous times. And then again, actually, before bringing down the house. So even after I had sold six novels, you know, nobody read them. I was in deeper debt before bringing down the house came out. And then everything kind of worked out. So it was a crazy ride. Which book made it through originally? Well, my first book was a book called Threshold. And I sold it to HarperCollins. Yeah, it came out in 96 and sold about four copies. I wrote a book called Reaper, which was my second book, which is about a computer virus. And then after that, I actually uh, wrote another book called Fertile Ground. And then I wrote a book for the X-Files. And then I wrote two books under a pen name. None of these books sold. Nobody bought any of these books. And then it wasn't until I met the MIT kids that I sort of broke through and wrote that book. Things I'm wondering is like, how did you persist? For me, sometimes like, hey, it's not going well. Like, all right, give up. But how did you keep going? Well, I mean, I have massive amounts of delusional belief in myself. I've always known this is all I've ever wanted to do. This is what I'm going to be. I'm a writer. And sort of, you know, rejection only made me want to do it more. I believe fully and completely that when I write something, if someone doesn't like it, then they're wrong and I'm right. So it's that level of delusion that I think you need 
to make it in this sort of career. And it's funny, one of my best friends, my roommate from college is Scott Stossel. And he's one of these like depressed, angry writers who hates everything he writes. And he writes thousands of pages and hates it. And, you know, he's a brilliant writer. Top of the New York Times is that kind of writer. But he comes from the school of like hating yourself and trying to perfect it. Well, I come from the school of completely thinking that the first thing I write is perfect and I don't need to re-edit it. <laughs> so I think it's delusion. I think that's what keeps you going is pure level of delusion. Listen, if you want to go into these artistic careers, you have to accept the fact that you're most likely never going to make a really good living at it. And when the one you do, it's just one of those crazy situations. It's almost like a lottery ticket. So you have to have ways of sort of living while you're attempting to chase that dream, whether it's acting or writing or movies, directing or any of those fields. I haven't heard that before, but you were saying that now to make a career out of writing, it can't just be a book. Like, can you go a little more on that? You know, listen, how many times do you see someone buy a book before they get on an airplane? Never. <laughs> People download a movie or they download a television shows or series, binge watch. That's what people do now. There's still a place for a book, but it's way less than it was even five years ago. And I'm not just meaning people are reading it on the ebooks. That's not true either. People just aren't reading books. The format is different. Now, there still are people who like books, and there's still authors who are just writing books. But for the most part, for me anyways, you know, I don't write a book unless I know I can sell the movie on it. I actually write a proposal, I sell it as a movie, and then I sell it as a book. So I write the book, and then the book is IP for whatever comes next. And I think that you have to look at the world the way it is now, which is people sitting in their rooms reading books is a much smaller audience now than it was 10 years ago. But people watching things and consuming stories in a different way is just as large, if not larger than it ever was. There's plenty of opportunity to tell stories. You just have to look at it in a much bigger format. I want to tell the story in as big a way as possible. And what that means is, you know, could this also be a big movie? Could this be something that millions of people around the world are going to be interested in? And not necessarily just buying it as a hardcover book or a paperback book. And if you just want to go and write a book, go write a book. And if you want to write poetry, go write poetry. If you want to have a long-term financial, you know, career in it, then you need to start thinking of it in a bigger way. And that's what I think. You know, there's different things. People write books and are perfectly happy with that. But for me, you know, I've always wanted to tell stories that people hear and read. And, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you could write a book and that would be it. But nowadays, it's definitely not it. Have there been books you have not written because you thought, hey, this wouldn't make it for a movie, even though it'd be a good story? It's even worse than that. So ever since The Social Network came out, I wrote myself into a corner because that book was so big and that movie was so big that I can't even pitch my publishers a small story. So often people tell me great stories that I'm like, you know, that would be a wonderful book and it's an incredible story, but it's just not big enough. It's not going to catch the world's eye. Like the woolly mammoth is big enough. I need stories that are big and exciting and, and sort of take me into this Jurassic Park type world every time. I heard a story the other day about people who actually met at Chernobyl. And I thought that was a cool story. There's a really cool story to wrap around that. But for me, I hear stories like that all the time, which are very cool and fun and like you know, would make a, a great little short kind of thing, but aren't necessarily going to be this international bestseller. When you've committed it to it, you're like, all right, I think this topic is huge. It's definitely going to be a movie. What are your days like? And then what's your process for creating that kind of book for this, you know, your latest book about woolly mammoths? So the woolly story, you know, was different than a lot of my other stories. And this was the first story that wasn't just pitched to me. Usually people are emailing me or writing me on Twitter or whatever and telling me story ideas. And I'm going through them and finding these incredible stories. This was one that I'd been hearing about. I'd been hearing about this quest to revive the woolly mammoth, about this Harvard lab that's making woolly mammoths. 
So I kind of just emailed George Church, the main character, out of the blue and said, I want to come to your lab and hang out. And he said, sure. And then I embedded myself in there. So in the beginning, the process is just being there, interviewing, listening, trying to get as much information as I can. Once I've got a good enough grip on the story, I write a outline. It's really a proposal. It's usually about 15 to 30 pages. I almost simultaneously pitch the movie and the book. And I sell the movie. And then I sell the book. And then I start the writing process, which is for me writing an outline, which is a very intense outline. The outline is my hardest part of my job. I know, in fact, how many pages are in each chapter. That's how strict my outline is. And I never vary from it. So I write this kind of immense outline, which covers the entire book. And I sit down to write. So I've locked myself in a room for the next three months and I write it. So for like the Wooly book specifically, was that like you get up at eight and you just write till five and you're just hardcore on it? So I've done all the research before I start writing. So I've got, you know, hundreds of pages of documents, interviews, all that kind of stuff. When I actually do the writing, my hours vary, but it's usually I'm writing from like 11 a.m. till 6. And then I'm writing again from like 8 p.m. till whenever. But I don't write by hours. One of the tricks of the trade that one should learn is that you don't write by time, you write by pages. I'm going to write six pages every day. And if that takes me two hours, I'm done in two hours. And if it takes me 10 hours, I'm done in 10 hours. So a lot of times my days are three hours long, and other times my days are 10 hours long. But I always try and hit my page number. It incentivizes you, but also when you're in the real mood to write, it goes quick, and when you're not, it goes a little bit slower. And so, you know, if you're writing six pages a day, you can be done with a book in 50 days. I think one thing I'm wondering for myself and for people listening is like, how do you determine like if it's a book or if it's a service or if it's a product that this is something that it's worth pursuing, like this business idea or this book idea? That's the tough question. But for me, you know, I'm looking for stories that intrigue me. They have to be about really smart people doing edgy, you know, interesting things. Usually it involves high stakes of some sort, you know, big money, sex, exotic locales, all of that kind of stuff. I need access to the main character and willing access. Usually I want the person to tell me the story and I want to be the only one writing it. The thing about stories that are in the news means that there's hundreds of people already gravitating around it, journalists are chasing the story. I want the stories that other people aren't already on top of so that it can be my story. And that's where it gets tricky sometimes. You know, if it's a great story, you might already have people interested in it, especially if it's a well-known one. But the other thing is it has to be something that is easily described in one sentence that everyone can grasp right away and that for the most part, people are going to really recognize right away. You know, Facebook, Wooly Mammoths, the Six MIT kids who took Vegas for millions. You know, that's the perfect sentence. I don't think I could come up with a better first sentence to a book than that. And I think that that's what you're looking for is the elevator pitch, they like to call it. But really, it's true. You need to be able to tell the story instantly because that's how you sell it. I love it. That's a great point. Like, can you describe what you're trying to do in one sentence and why it's appealing? And if it goes beyond that one sentence, it's going to be very hard to sell. I mean, it's going to be really hard to publicize and it's going to be hard for people to tell their friends about. And that's how books sell. How did the first book that really exploded, Bringing Down the House, that's the first one that hit, like what went down? So, I mean, that story came out of nowhere. You know, I was writing these trashy thrillers for the most part. I met this group of MIT kids through a girl I'd gone to college with, and I didn't know she was an MIT Blackjack team member. And she introduced me to them and they were MIT kids with tons of money. And it was all in $100 bills. And I couldn't figure out why they had so much money in hundreds. So I went to the main character's house and in his laundry was $250,000 in like stacks of hundreds. You know, I was like, why do you have all this money? And he invited me to go to Vegas. So I started going to Vegas with the MIT Blackjack team. I thought this was an amazing story. And so I wrote a book proposal. My agent didn't think much of it. You know, he's like, 
Nobody really cares about Vegas cards. This was right before Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker, before sort of cards took off and Vegas became super hot again. But we sold it. And a couple things happened at once. First of all, I had written an article for Wired Magazine about the story. And Kevin Spacey saw the article and just called me up. You know, the phone rang and it was Kevin Spacey. And he said he wanted to make a movie out of it. And that was incredible. What, Kevin Spacey just calls you? What's that like? The phone rings and this guy, you know, Dana Brunetti is, ran his production company. And he goes, I'm Dana, I have Kevin Spacey. I actually hung up on them. I was like, it's not Kevin Spacey. This is bull. I thought it was the MIT team prank calling me because <laughs> they used to prank call me all the time. <laughs> I Googled uh, the Dana Brunetti name and found that he did work for Kevin. And they flew me out to LA, actually. And they met me. And the first thing they did is we get in Spacey's car, you know, and driving through LA and they're driving me somewhere. I'm like, I don't know where we're going. And we pull up to this mansion, which I recognize immediately as the Playboy Mansion. So to introduce me to Hollywood, they brought me to the Playboy Mansion. And this was like at the height of half. It was unbelievable. And so we were there for movie night and then we went back for the Halloween party. And that's how they wooed me. <laughs> Kevin said, I want to make a movie out of this. And so that's what happened. And actually, interestingly enough, we took it out to every studio and they all turned it down except for MGM, which was the same casinos that the MIT Blackjack team had been hitting. The MGM studios loved it. And they actually ended up buying it. Sony and MGM, you know, were one company. And simultaneous to that, the book came out and just exploded as a book. So it still took five years to get that movie made, though. It was not a quick, easy situation, even though everyone kind of recognized it as a movie. It took a few years to get it down right. Why is that? You know, Hollywood is tough. I mean, there were multiple scripts and uh, they had to find the right director and the right stars. You know, Kevin always wanted to play the professor. So they had one star, you know, involved. But uh, Hollywood is a strange beast where you get really, really close. And then unless it's actually shooting, you never know if the movie's actually going to get made. So it was just it took a while to pull it together. What was it like the first time in Vegas? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was wild. It was totally over the top. These guys would carry money in like bricks of money or duffel bags with a million dollars in it. And you're hitting Vegas, you know, with this system where you're spreading MIT kids out across a casino and hitting all the tables at once. And it's a really amazing story. And I'm sure a lot of people have seen the movie 21. And it was very similar to that except for nobody was quite as good looking oh, really? <laughs> because that's, you know, they were really just churning money because it was a mathematical sort of way to beat blackjack that works. And so to catch the feel of it, I actually wrote the book in Vegas, staying in a different hotel room every night. I wrote the book in 18 days. It was crazy. I mean, it was just this wild experience where I basically was living in Vegas for a month or so to write the book. Were you partying with them? Like, what was the days like? This is just a crazy period of my life, I guess. Yeah, the Vegas story kind of just exploded. I booked the Today Show. And so even though it was this tiny book with the first printing of 12,000 copies, I went on the Today Show and the book just exploded. And it was, you know, number one on Amazon. And it was just this crazy situation where it just couldn't keep it on shelves. It just sold and sold and sold. And it spent about 63 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was just one of those massive books. As you wrote the original book, Bring Down the House, how did that become a hit? Or how did you know, like, holy shit, this is actually working? So when I wrote Bringing Down the House, I knew it was something special, I felt, but I thought that about all my books and nobody had read any of my books. The minute I was on the Today Show and kind of it exploded, it happened so fast. I mean, it was one of these instantaneous situations where they sold out the first run in, in the first day. They just didn't have any books left. You knew it was going to be successful at that moment. Wow. 
you know, you put out so many books and finally something works. The problem with that is you're like a drug addict trying to chase that high with every book. <laughs> it just doesn't happen with every book. It's an amazing experience when something explodes like that. Yeah. But you know, what's funny is everyone thinks, you know, overnight success, but you have to remember this is my sixth book. You know, it was 2002. My first book came out in 96. So I've been writing for six years. I was sort of an old warrior, even at a young age, because I had been through so many books and so many projects at that point. It wasn't like my first go round, but it was incredible that it all worked out. You never know where it's going to strike. It was lightning striking, really, a life changing moment. I became a nonfiction writer, had no intention of being a nonfiction writer. I'd never written nonfiction before, never went to journalism school. And uh, certainly plenty of critics have said I'm not a journalist <laughs> and that my nonfiction is not really nonfiction. But it was a true story. You know, I just sort of wrote it as a thriller. I've read a lot of your books and I enjoy all of them because not all of them are going to hit like Rigged and Ugly Americans and they were great. I've written uh, 18 books of which people have read two, but I have an audience who find them all. You know, it's interesting. Books like Ugly Americans, Rigged, Sex on the Moon, you know, these are narrative nonfiction books that have, have an audience for them. But the mega audiences come when I write a story that kind of transcends the audience that I have. But then every now and then, like with the social network, you reach this sort of four quadrant audience, as they say in Hollywood, where more readers kind of jump into it. What's interesting with that, you know, I run a sumo.com and a software company, but I, you know, I put out the podcast and some YouTube on my spare time and because I enjoy it and I get love sharing stories like yours. And I put out some of these things that I'm like, oh my God, this is going to go viral. I'm going to be on a Today Show. I'm going to be right next to Ben. You know, I was talking to an expert about it. He's like, look, one out of 30 of your episodes is going to do great. And so I think there's a great message that you're like, look, I've put out 18 and really only two have hit mega. People like the other ones, but these are the ones. So just realizing that everything will hit is was actually a good message for me to hear from you. Yeah. I mean, you can't control it either. I mean, it's interesting. Like, you know, you find a story that has is so awesome and exciting and sometimes they explode and sometimes they don't. And there's just no way to sort of figure it out. What other things surprised you about Hollywood? Everything is by committee. The screenwriter writes a screenplay and then five people have to give it notes and then five more people have to give it notes and it has to pass up from person to person to person. And eventually it gets to a point where someone can say yes to it, but they're all looking for reasons to say no, as opposed to sort of the book industry where if you sell a book, it's going to come out. You know, you're going to have pretty much control of what's in it. You write the book and your editor will give you suggestions and want to make edits, but it's your book. But that's not the way it is with the movie business. It's never your movie. It's a lot of people's movie. And that can be good and that can be bad. You know, I've been really lucky. I mean, you look at the social network and it's one of the best movies ever made. And David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin. I mean, these are amazing human beings to be involved with. And so I was incredibly lucky to watch them make the movie. But it was an intense sort of scary experience. I mean, a David Fincher movie set is not a fun place to be, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. I mean, he's an intense guy, a brilliant guy. And Sorkin's intense and brilliant but as opposed to 21, which was like a party. But yeah, I've watched two different types of movies get made. And luckily, both of them are very good. You said you got to meet Spacey and, and the MIT guys with bringing down the house. Did you get to do the same thing with the Accidental Billionaires? Uh, Zuckerberg and, and some of the guys that were there? Well, Zuckerberg wasn't happy about this project, you have to remember. Um, he was not thrilled I was writing the story. He wanted to control the story. He didn't want to talk to me. He didn't want me to do this. I know Sean Parker very well. So Sean and I were close and the Winklevalli and I are, are very close and I'm still friends with them. So I see them all the time. I know um, Cheryl Sandberg pretty well. I went to college with her. So I know a lot of the people, but Zuckerberg himself wouldn't have anything to do with me. He did not like that I was doing that project. I know for myself, I think, oh, it's supposed to be overnight. It's a slog, man. You have to embrace the rejection. That's a big part of it. You know, I had 190 rejection slips in my first year of writing. 
And I put them all over the walls. Like I look like a serial killer. Everyone I've ever worked with since, I have a rejection letter from. So, I mean, it's that that gets you there. You have to go through that, expect to fail enormously and a lot of times before you have that first success. So you just really love to write. Not easy at all, but it was easier for you to continue and persist on it during the periods that you're getting a lot of this rejection. Oh, yeah. You can't be doing it for any other reason. I mean, you have to think this is all I want to do. This is everything for me. For me, it wasn't even just I'm going to write a book. For me, it was going to be I'm going to write 100 books. I'm going to write until people are reading my books. And you have to have that intense sort of determination. In some cases, you just may not make it in that career and you have to find a way to do what you love and still make a living at it. But you have to have that intensity. I think you have to have that true belief in this is what you want to do. Has your writing process changed over the years? I know a story that's going to be my next story pretty quickly. And from that minute, I will have a finished book within six months. For that to happen, you have to have everything sort of compartmentalized. And I know exactly how to write a book from start to finish. From the minute I'm starting my interviews, I know how to interview people. So I'm not just interviewing people like a regular interview. I'm looking for a series of stories that I know I can string together in a three-act system, much like a movie or a book. So I'm drawing the stories out of my real characters to tell a true story in the format of a thriller. And then I know how to write an outline that'll work for me intensely. And then I know how to sell a movie and sell it. I mean, it's all a science at this point. I mean, 18 books in, you get to a point where you know how to do it from start to finish. Now, I don't know how to make a book a bestseller. I don't know how to get everyone to read it. I don't think anybody knows how to do that, shy of having a movie come out. Now, that always makes a book a bestseller because a movie has millions of dollars in advertising. But in terms of writing the story, it's down to a science for me. What kind of questions are you saying? Like, hey, I ask questions that a normal person wouldn't ask because I'm trying to create a story. Right. So when I sit down with George Church to write Wooly, so this is a story about a scientist at Harvard who is making a woolly mammoth. You know, he's the Einstein of our times. I wanted to know how he's making a woolly mammoth, why he's making a woolly mammoth, what led him to this spot. But I don't just want everything. I want these stories that are integral to that, that are exciting, that are thriller-esque. You know, when I get into his childhood, what was the moment where you knew you wanted to be a scientist? And all I want is a vignette. So I, he tells me a lot, and I find that vignette, and I focus on it. And then I'd say, how did you come up with the idea of making a woolly mammoth? There's a long answer to that. But what I'm looking for is that moment, that story, that exciting kind of heart pounding moment. And making science exciting is hard. You know, you have to find moments that are not people sitting in a lab filling test tubes, but are moments like going across the ice in the Arctic Circle to find the frozen carcass of a woolly mammoth because you want to sequence its DNA and then synthesize it. What are you going to do with that? You're going to put it into an Asian elephant. That's how you get a woolly mammoth. So an elephant gives birth to a woolly mammoth. And this is exciting. This is where you get Jurassic Parky. But you have to find those stories. How did you find an elephant? All of that kind of is what makes it an exciting story. So I'm looking for these moments in the story. So for you, it, it's like a next level Jurassic Park. Is that where you're seeing like the one liner for you? This has been the best reviewed book of my career, which is kind of an interesting thing. I've never had good reviews before. And they're all saying, you know, move over Jurassic Park. This is like Jurassic Park where the scientist is the good guy. It's also real. You can't make dinosaurs because we don't even have any dinosaur DNA. There's no such thing. We don't know the DNA of a dinosaur. It's too old. But we have woolly mammoth DNA. We have it sequenced. We've actually now in Boston, they've brought back to life woolly mammoths, you know, in the cellular level already. So we're very close to actually having a real woolly mammoth. So this is true. 
But it's Jurassic Park, but it also has this good message and that the reason they're making woolly mammoths is to save the world. I was curious how you dealt with the negative reviews. I don't mind bad reviews. It comes with the territory. Some people are going to love what you do, especially if you do controversial work, which is what I do. And some people are going to hate it. And the most controversial projects in my careers are the ones that have done the best, you know. The social network was hugely controversial because Zuckerberg said it wasn't true. I maintain that it was true and that it is the first year of Facebook as seen through the eyes of Eduardo and the Winklevi and Sean Parker. And Mark disagrees. I know my audience and I think my audience loves what I do. And those are the people that I write for. I don't write for critics at the New York Times. I would love it if they liked my work. You never know who's going to take to this form of nonfiction, who isn't. I think that I'm an entertainer in some respects, and I write books that for people maybe who wouldn't necessarily pick up a hardcover book, but someone gives them bringing down the house for their birthday, and then they're blown away by it. And then they start reading. I don't mind it at all. What are you reading these days? Or what have you read or watched recently that you're like super excited about or really enjoying? Maybe I'm late to the party. I just read Ready Player One which was phenomenal. What a phenomenal book. And that's going to be a movie by Spielberg, right? So I I highly recommend Ready Player One to anybody who is into the 80s and video games and virtual reality and all that stuff. I just picked up The Circle, which is that being a movie as well, the David Eggers book about kind of a Facebook type situation. I think it's really good. I just started it. And I read Game of Thrones. You know, if he ever writes another one, I'll be first in line for that. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love my conversation with Ben. If you did, go check out his new book on Amazon, Wooly. It's a modern day Jurassic Park, drugs, sex, dinosaurs. You guys know how it goes. Go check it out on Amazon. Number two, after you buy Ben's book, go tell someone you love him. Hit up your mom. Be like, yo, mom, I'm sorry I haven't hit you up. I love you. Number three, leave a review on the show. I'd love to know what you guys thought. You can tweet me at Noah Kagan, K-A-G-N, and what you thought about it. Have a spectacular day. What's your favorite day of the week?